Hello, and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm James. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. And together, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. In this second series, we're talking about futures. And in this second episode, we're asking the question, what did the future look like in the past? We're going to cover everything from Frankenstein and AI to Elon Musk and Mars, not the chocolate bar, telegraphy to fabulations and Afrofuturism to Ada Lovelace. So who are we talking to in this episode? We talked to a curator of modern sciences and historian of Victorian science. Hi, I'm Josh Null. Uh, I'm the curator of modern sciences in the Whipple Museum of the History of Science uh, here in Cambridge. Uh, and I'm a historian of Victorian science uh, with a particular interest in astronomy in the British Empire and Mars and extraterrestrial life. A professor of digital humanities and director of Cambridge Digital Humanities. Hi, I'm Caroline Bassett. I'm the professor of digital humanities at Cambridge. I research the uh, intersections between technology and culture. I'm interested in science fiction and futures and media technologies and the past. And a junior research fellow in the history of artificial intelligence. Hi, I'm Johnny Penn. I'm a junior research fellow at St. Edmunds College and I'm currently a postdoc on a uh, year-long research project looking at the history of artificial intelligence, which is the subject I, I study. I'm going to throw this question to Josh. I'm just going to tee you up, uh, give you a an advance warning here. Um, so in this series, we're thinking all about the future. And this episode is all about what the future looked like in the past. You researched the 19th and early 20th centuries in your work. So we thought we could go to, you know, this is the perfect place to begin. So can you sort of paint us a picture briefly? What was sort of everyday life like for most people in the UK and the US in the sort of the 1800s and the 1900s? Well, I mean, in a certain sense, in the British context, the early 19th century is the beginnings of a form of modernity that actually looks relatively similar to today. Uh, it was a period of massive change then, but it's the moment at which there's a huge amount of development in new science, new technology that begin to transform the way that people live and develop the kinds of modern techno technologically oriented urban life that we still live in to this day. And so I'm talking about technologies like the advent of railways, telegraphic communication, mass printing, so affordable uh, literacy. And so in that sense, it's the 19th century is, a, is an extraordinary period of change. And also, I think very important to note, a period of imperial expansion. So it's a period of um, globalization and often enforced globalization. But it's also a period where people start to um, bring into their lives the kind of technologies that have uh, we still live with today. And I think that is one of the ways in which uh, questions about the future really begin to become quite important in the period. It's because people start thinking about how these technologies are going to change not just individual lives, but society as a whole. Uh, in the in the future. Can we just quickly go back to, you said the term modernity. Can you sort of just explain to us what that means? Sure. Um, I mean, modernity is very hard to define, uh, obviously. One of the ways that I think some people have defined it, which is relevant for this podcast, is 
modernity is the point at which a society or a culture stops thinking about history as essentially cyclical and starts to think of it as progressive which is to say that people stop thinking about their roles in society as unchanging and probably recapitulating the roles of, of their parents and grandparents to uh, a point where people start to see perhaps uh, change as inevitable uh, and progress as likely. And that's one way of defining modernity. And I think it's quite telling that it that form of modernity starts to be recognised in the early 19th, late 18th, early 19th century. So in some senses, that's sort of like maybe the first time people think about the future is different to the past. And this could be, you know, this could be a question to open up to Caroline or Johnny. I wonder if it's the first time, well, not the first time, but ways of thinking about other futures change so they become based on science and technology rather than based on magic so you begin to think about utopia as something delivered by technology rather than something that's going to be delivered by or that exists as magic you know and that's an interesting way to look at it maybe and explains uh why theories of, of utopia were, were strong in that period as well can you can you tell us what um, like what theories of utopia are before we move on? Okay, I, I guess um, the I well I, I think something interesting about utopia is it's a way of thinking about a possible future that's not here yet but might be to come. But it's also I mean the classic definition of utopia is a none place. So a utopia is a place we're not at yet but might wish to be in. And one of the things that's interesting about technology and the idea of progress and the rush of progress is it seems to say, well, maybe utopia is something you can get to, you know, rather than something which is, say, a, a magical island or a revelation or even, you know, a paradise, another place. So there's a break there. So one of the most famous discussions of utopia was Oscar Wilde's. And his brilliant comment was, if we got to utopia, we would just start set off again somewhere else. So utopia is always over the horizon and science and technology and utopia are so mixed up together. I mean, we were talking about how science and technology was giving us this sense of things keep keeping on moving forward. And um, maybe, Josh, you can talk a little bit about exhibitions um, and how that was sort of uh, contributing to this sense of things moving forward and it being about science and technology and innovation. Um, but I also want to bring into the mix new technologies that were coming up around this time. I mean, you mentioned a bunch at the beginning, but maybe perhaps um, communications technologies like the telegraph and the telephone specifically. Sorry, I've given you a lot there to work with. So pick up on whatever, whatever is most interesting. The first thing that's important to point out, um, uh, building on what Caroline has just said, is that what Caroline describes uh, is in a certain sense, as well as this transition from magic to science, it's also a transition from thinking about the future in individualistic terms to thinking about the future in social terms, in, in the future of entire so societies and cultures. And the key kind of uh, component in there, for us at least in, in this group, is science and technology, because this is in the period, the 19th century, when science goes from being uh, practiced by a very small number of aristocratic 
uh, white men in, in very cloistered environments to a matter of public property and public concern. And science is one of the defining features of public culture, certainly in British Victorian culture. And that's obviously typified above all by things like the Great Exposition of 1851 in London at the Crystal Palace, where you have this huge show where millions of people come to look upon science and technology and the products of uh, global empire. And it's extremely progressive and progressivist uh, in its approach. There is this sense that there's kind of almost limitless possibilities that science can bring in. But there's also with this from certain people um, worries that science and technology therefore uh, are going to bring in unknown futures. And so on the one hand, there's this idea that science is kind of the model for the future development of society. But also on the other hand, there's a sense of we don't know uh, what science might bring. And it might bring utopia um, or it might bring dystopia. Well, I just wanted to expand on that because I think to the public hearing words like science and technology and innovation and progress, it's easy to um, focus on uh, threads in our past that seem constructive. And of course, you know, what we as historians are trying to do at the same time now is to show the power imbalances as Josh alluded to in these projections forward, many of which we inhabit today. So a specific example, um, you know, Josh mentioned in the kind of new class of intellectual aristocracy in the late 19th century, you know, I, I focus on AI and, and someone that's talked about in, in the history of AI often is Charles Babbage who developed early machines that resembled or kind of uh, uh, were prefigurative to, to computers today. And, and so he and uh, 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 Lady Lovelace are considered kind of important to the history of computing and the history of AI. But one thing to note about Babbage is uh, his idea of what the mind was resembled his kind of locale time, you know, where he was in history and, and geographically. And, he, he thought that cognition was akin to a, a factory. Uh, and we're still, unfortunately, having to unwind ourselves from that assumption uh, today because, you know, he was a, a, an important voice in that chronology. Um, so that's the double-edged sword, I guess, is as we approach these things and try to understand the positive visions, we also need to know, as Josh alluded to, and, and as Pro Professor Bassett uh, does in her research, uh, the, the kind of imbalances uh, around gender, sex, class, coloniality, all this stuff as well, uh, which is, uh, uh, what's the word for this, is, um, gives me vertigo sometimes <laughs> to see the scale of of uh, how much we live in those people's assumptions. I suppose as well, there would be, as well as this sense of, of, um, of a massively rapid progressive change, there would be the sense of chaos and the sense of modernity as overwhelming, which you would see in writings of the time and for, you know, in uh, even Walter Benjamin's sense of an explosion. So an explosion of uh, new technologies taking us to a new place. So I think there would be uh, a, a, another way of thinking about that, uh, thinking about what progress did to us culturally. So it's not it's not that we kind of um, jumped on the line to the future and, and that became rather unproblematic. It, it seems to me that one needs to think about modernity's cultural forms as well as symptoms of that kind of chaos. 
you know, and I also was thinking about the telegraph while you were speaking, Joshua, about uh, the annihilation of space by time and, and this this notion that that the message is divorced from the carrier and how magical that is actually. I mean, we don't think about it anymore. But the idea that you don't have to carry the transport of the message with you is a kind of transportation technology. Can um, can we stay with the, the talking about communications technologies then for just a second before we move on to maybe talking about some more um, computer-based stuff perhaps? Um, but can I ask Josh, um, how did these communications technologies influence the development of science and technology, more technology in this time period? In a direct and literal sense, the development of telegraphy in the 19th century is one of, if not the most important um, theatres in which the discipline of physics is developed. Um, so uh, electrical science and telegraphy and electrification more generally of uh, buildings, urban spaces, is pretty much the dominant theatre in which the physical sciences, particularly what we now call physics, develop their work and theory because physicists are deeply concerned with how to make telegraphy work. So that's a kind of literal direct answer. But at a, uh, at a social level, the really profound thing that changes in this period is that you move from a position where communications technologies take weeks or months to move between geographical spaces to a position where it takes seconds. And it's not surprising that these technologies are being developed and um, vast amounts of money and time and resources are put into them at exactly the same moment that global empire is uh, greatly expanding in the British context, the British Empire is greatly expanding. So things like submarine cable telegraphy, which is not just having telegraph cables between towns and cities, but having telegraph cables between spaces like Britain and India. Britain and India are directly connected by telegraph cables in the 1860s. Um, uh, this changes the, the, the way in which the British Empire is able to govern itself, but also the way in which people are able to conceive of an empire as a unified body. And so this is also the period when we're thinking about futures that we start to see the development of uh, what we would now call science fiction and a lot of future projected science fiction that themes itself around future war and future empire and starts to play out on these themes of, well, where is society going if Britain is able to communicate with its empire in India in in a matter of seconds. And in the British context with this science fiction, you start to see, this is a point that Duncan Bell has written a great deal about, Cambridge historian Duncan Bell. Um, you start to see scientific fantasies of uh, racial domination by the Anglo-Saxons, uh, and particularly ideas about how the future will uh, trend towards a single global country or a single global government, which almost inevitably in these stories is uh, a white Anglo-Saxon government. Wow, so we're really heading back in time in this episode. 
I mean, I thought the 1980s were ancient history, let alone the 1880s. Well, it wasn't that long ago, and actually everyday life wasn't even that different uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s compared to today. Except, of course, that a lot of things we take for granted now, railways, telegraphic communication, mass printing, affordable literacy, were all new back then. And before we go on, let's just briefly cover when exactly the Victorian era was, since we'll be hearing a lot about this from Josh who's a historian of the period. It's basically the 63 years during the reign of Queen Victoria, 1837 to 1901. It's a time during which the effects of the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries are still being felt. And as Josh mentioned, there was a lot of enforced globalization and imperial expansion. We're still grappling with the impacts of all of this, both the inventions and the colonialism today. And one of those inventions was what Josh calls telegraphy, which is basically sending messages long distance without using physical objects. Like attaching a post-it note to a pigeon, and attaching the pigeon to a rocket, and attaching the rocket to a horse. Whilst horses communicate via horse code, we humans have Morse code. Samuel Morse is one of the many inventors of the telegraph, which popped up in the UK, US, Germany, and Russia at pretty much the same time during the 1830s and 40s. Morse's key innovation, however, was Morse code, which completely revolutionized long distance communication by devising a way of sending messages simply and efficiently. Electrical and physical sciences saw a huge leap forward in this time period, in part because of scientists' interests in how exactly telegraphy worked. Do you think people sent emojis via Morse code? Thanks, thanks, Nick. That's a that's a skull and crossbones there. Well, maybe. <laughs> The telegraph began the process of shrinking our world and laid the foundation for the telephone, fax machine, and even the internet. Caroline called it the annihilation of space by time. Which sounds both cool and very, very bad. Basically, the fact that messages no longer needed to be physically carried around is actually a kind of transportation technology, not just a communication technology. And how convenient that all this tech was taking off during the time that the British Empire was expanding, eh? For example, Britain and India were connected by telegraph cables in the 1860s. Josh also mentioned that this was a period where modernity really came to the fore. Yeah, we had to ask what Josh meant by modernity, and the answer wasn't exactly what we had expected. Roughly, Josh told us that modernity is the period in time when people started to think about the possibility of progression not just doing the same thing their parents did and their parents before them. Caroline told us that another part of modernity was that people started striving towards new, better futures. The idea of a utopia, perhaps enabled by science and technology rather than magic. However, Caroline was quick to point out that technology can't actually deliver a utopia. Absolutely. Technology delivers things, but more often than not, technology falls short and disappoints our utopian hopes. Basically, us pesky humans are always looking for the next best thing, and even though science and technology advance, our utopias always seem to be over the next horizon. Well, in the 1800s and early 1900s, people started thinking about the future as a collective public concern. Josh mentioned the Great Exhibition in Crystal Palace, London in 1851, where public exhibits to do with culture and industry were exhibited, including lots of science exhibits. Excuse me, Naomi, I think you'll find it was called the Great Exhibition of the Works of an Industry of All Nations. Which is ironic, as I bet it wasn't really all nations super inclusive now, was it? 
Well, probably not. Josh noted, however, that it was progressive in its approach, which basically means that the scientific things on display at the exhibition, including state-of-the-art telescopes and an early precursor to the fax machine, were highlighting the apparently limitless advantages of science. However, this scientific progress wasn't all sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. There were also worries that science and technology would bring in unknown futures instead of utopia. Would science bring dystopia? Think The Hunger Games, which if you haven't heard of, is somewhere in between Fortnite and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Johnny told us that the words science, technology and progress seem pretty positive, but even when people's visions of the future, visions of the future constructed in the past, may have been considered positive at the time. Nowadays, we would spot some pretty glaring issues around gender, sex and colonialism. And Caroline mentioned that even in the Victorian era, modernity was sometimes thought of as something chaotic or overwhelming, like an explosion of new technology. And although the idea of chaos can be scary, it can also provide opportunities and potential. In the Victorian era, there was a rush of industrialization and creative disorder, introduced by speed, multiple spaces and times, and technology change. Although I suspect that if I were an injured, topless Jeff Goldblum a la Jurassic Park, then my explanation of chaos would have been far more profound. Johnny also mentioned Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. Charles and Ada worked closely together in the 1830s and 40s on lots of mathsy problems, and Ada is sometimes credited as being the prophet of the computer age. She was the first to write about the potential for computers to compute or manipulate symbols and not just calculate. We'll hear a little bit more about Ada later. So how are all of these new inventions and ideas about the future influencing the way people think about AI and about sci-fi at the time? Sure, yeah. I, so I want to share an anecdote of, of a, a conference I was at in a few years ago with some big AI people. And one of them, uh, who was a technical researcher, uh, was talking about um, science fiction and using science fiction as a way to imagine other minds. And when questioned about whether uh, uh, feminist theory could inform the idea of what a mind was, uh, the researcher kind of balked and said, well, I, I don't know. I haven't really looked there. And um, the, the provocation was, you know, for millennia, different Western cultures have considered men to be the exemplars of, of, of thought and didn't, uh, you know, dignify half of our species with the same um, basic level of respect. And so to look at sci-fi and not to understand things like feminist theory as a source for types of intelligence is, I think, a, 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 a little window into the ways that we can become imprisoned um, and in these kind of fantasies that have oppressive edges, strong oppressive edges. Um, Professor Bassett would be better situated to, to uh, talk about this, but the reason I say it is because um, sci-fi was always important to the, the, the field of AI. Um, the, the researchers I look at in the, in the mid-1950s mid onwards were fascinated by it and fascinated by the idea that computers could be used to kind of algorithmically decide governance. Uh, and we are today, unfortunately, having to unpack the, the kind of uh, rough edges of that assumption, too. Thank you. But I, I, would, just, I would just hear, I would um, 
I would perhaps uh, think about Ada Lovelace and actually, maybe this isn't re quite relevant here, but I think Ada Lovelace has become a science fiction figure in contemporary theory. I mean, she has become iconic in a way that both recognizes what she did, but it also, it's part of a search to think about the role of women in that era and their contribution to forms of thinking about the future, I think. So you can trace Ada Lovelace through to Ada Lovelace Day, to discussions around technology and inclusion, to the work of people like Sadie Plant around cyber feminism or the question of women and gender in the 1990s. So Ada Lovelace is both a, a figure that would appear in Joshua's explorations of Victorian science, you know, as a real human, but also has become this science fiction figure, I think. And she's very interesting for that, for that reason. And the other person to is, you know, to, to think about in terms of science fiction has to be Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. And I think John, you might have more to say about that as well. The story of Frankenstein, I think, is a good example of uh, of another type of uh, or another way in which fiction grapples with um, perhaps. And I'm not a literary scholar. I, I would uh, look to you know Sarah Dillon, who's one of the uh, my collaborators here in Cambridge on the histories of AI project that we're doing now. But on how whether this was a response to some of the, the chaos or the feelings of chaos that Caroline alluded to earlier. Um, in that it was unclear where these technologies would uh, lead us. And uh, sci-fi explores those topics as well, you know, later. But I think the, 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 the looking at Frankenstein has, the fact that we return to Frankenstein uh, even today, or even more today, uh, I think suggests that we are still grappling with the same fears, that, that the chaos that many people feel today uh, lives on. And uh, yeah, I think probing the values behind and, and the sources of um, the description. So, you know, to go back to the earlier point in this conversation when we were talking about uh, progress, my reflex is always progress for who, uh, because it, it, I think, helps to delineate who is benefiting and who is suffering as a result of, you know, certain visions of utopia or dystopia or um, uh, trying to isolate where new harm might be coming from. And, Josh, do you have anything to sort of add about, you know, um, how science fiction well, has come across? Well, I mean, Frankenstein is, seems rather obviously to be, um, one interpretation is that it's born of um, new concerns about the misuse of science. And so you start to see in the later 19th century, uh, more and more sci-fi that begins to play with these ideas. So obviously the Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Uh, Wells is, is in a similar vein. Um, and they're, they're, as so much sci-fi does, those kinds of stories are, they're, they're, they're fabulations of uh, worlds with new and different technologies, but at the same time, they are also fabulations of social worlds. So they're playing with, the interrelation of science and technology and society um, uh, and changing certain variables and importantly in this era they're beginning to project into the future. I mean one of the striking things about Frankenstein is that like other earlier 19th century sci-fi it's actually Frankenstein's actually set I think in the in the near past um, and if you look at the stories of things like Verne uh, they're set in the present 
But when you get to the late 19th century, one of the key transformations is that you start to see more and more stories set in the future. And obviously Wells's The Time Machine is kind of the canonical uh, story that in many ways defines the, the advent of what people would now call science fiction, although um, Wells himself called these stories scientific romances, which I think is a much better phrase. That's where you start to see not just concerns about uh, the misuse of science, but you also start to see projections of what uh, scientific ideas and technologies might lead to over time. So obviously in the time machine, you have this kind of pessimistic extrapolation where society degenerates precisely because it gets so comfortable. And so the time traveler arrives in the future and finds that um, uh, evolution has diverged into the Eloy and Morlocks um, because uh, so much uh, wealth and comfort has been generated for the wealthy members of society that uh, they have degenerated into this kind of lazy, thoughtless race. Can I jump in on the question, or, uh, just on the topic of laziness and th thoughtlessness? I want to talk about Mark Zuckerberg for a sec, because um, there's a reflex around artificial intelligence that uh, it starts in the late 50s, where researchers, technical researchers, start to allude to a uh, a kind of uh, five to ten years into the future. Uh, so, you know, an early article by uh, a researcher named Herb Simon, who went on to win a Nobel Prize and helped develop, you know, one of the first uh, prototypes in, in AI, said that, you know, within 10 years, a digital computer would be the world's chess champion, uh, that it would prove, you know, mathematical theorems and it would be able to play music and, and, and discover theories in psychology and things like this. Now, there's an argument to say, well, some of that progress has happened. It didn't happen in 10 years. Uh, it happened, you know, small portions of it have happened in 70 plus years. But to go back to Mark Zuckerberg and, and the feelings of, or parallels between the feelings of chaos in the Victorian period and, and maybe what people are feeling today, the legacy or the, the, the kind of the feeling of, of in this pandemic moment that we're, we're living in. Um, there has been scrutiny of, of Facebook around uh, what their uh, kind of practices and uh, algorithms do to the ways we interrelate, the relations that we have, uh, and the ways we consume our news, et cetera, et cetera. And Mark Zuckerberg has been using the same basic trick. And he said, you know, in the next five to 10 years, AI will do X, Y, and Z. And it's actually interesting to look. You can see that he's been uh, he's given the same sort of apology for 15 or 20 years now. Um, and, you know, it's just it's a it's a reflex. I think we should question because I think the, the idea of the future can be weaponized and turned against us to kind of mortgage our present and say, oh, well, just just get through it now and it'll get better in the future and uh, dislocate us from our agency. Um, so. Yeah, I just wanted to problematize that because I think it's, again, it's something that we struggle with with contemporary technologies and our imagined future, you know, tomorrow. So focusing on the future kind of um, encourages people to undervalue the present, I guess, or something like that. It's it's a way to force people to capitulate. Um, you know, it's like a waiting room syndrome where technology kind of holds us in this expectation that flying cars will come. And so we accept, you know, things like precarious work standards in, 
you know, all, all sorts of different industries now. And uh, yeah, I just, I'd be very interested actually to know from um, both of my co-panelists here, what resistance has looked like in, in their research? What, what have people done to resist these ideas of the future if they don't feel that they're represented in them? I think that maybe the, the, the idea of the future and the role of utopian thinking needs to be thought about differently. So this is a very old division, but there's a kind of division in thinking around utopia as something to aim for, which is not a blueprint, and technologically derived futures, which, as you say, Johnny, are a kind of fixed, a jam tomorrow that will arrive tomorrow, that will promise to iron out things like social, social division or gender difference or discrimination. So the automated future of tomorrow, luxury automated communism, that's one of those phrases that floats around, will solve all of our problems. So meanwhile, don't worry about politics. You don't have to get involved. Just sit back and you know Zuckerberg will deliver. And that perhaps is not really a way of thinking about utopia as a political project to make a future. It's more saying, this is the future that technology is going to deliver us to. And I think that distinction is quite important. It's a very old one. Uh, there's a very old discussion about whether technology will depreciate the future, which comes from the 50s, 60s discussions around utopia. Um, so that might be a, a useful way to think about. I, I agree about the future being weaponized. I think it's also something that can be used by many different groups, actually, in, in two ways. So, I mean, we're kind of talking about how our values in the present uh, sort of have an influence on how we think ahead to the future, whether it's a utopia or a dystopian viewpoint. And just, I kind of want to go back to um, what Josh was saying earlier, and then um, Caroline and Johnny uh, would love to hear your thoughts about this. But Josh, can we start with you? And could you summarize some of the dominant beliefs or values in the in the you know nineteenth century that um, showed up in science fiction back then, or the way people were talking about and thinking about the future? And then once we've heard from Josh a little bit, maybe Caroline and, and Johnny can come in with some more twentieth century um, ideas about that. Sure. I mean, unfortunately, one of the the dominant um, uh, ideas and values that you can't really get away from in late 19th and early 20th century uh, science fiction and projections of the future is virulent racism and particularly a belief in the need for the uh, development of white Anglo-Saxon races as the dominant controlling forces in global governance. And one of the striking arenas in which this appears in my research is on the planet Mars. Because in the period I'm looking at, Mars is hotly debated as to whether it's a living or a dying planet. And if Mars is a living planet and has life on it, then there is a strand of thinking, and this is up to and including senior astronomers thinking this, the argument is, is that Mars is a more developed uh, planet than the Earth, because Mars will have formed earlier than the Earth when the solar system uh, was forming, when it was condensing from a cloud of, of gas, 
the planets form from the outside in. So Mars is an older planet. So if life has evolved on Mars, it will actually be more evolved. And the reason this is interesting to me is because the astronomers who begin to theorize about what life will be like on Mars really use it as a space to project their own prejudicial views about the nature of race and technology. So Percival Lowell, who is the dominant astronomer arguing for advanced intelligent life on Mars, argues that he can see canals that have been constructed on the planet Mars, which he says is a massive irrigation system which has been used to channel water around the planet to keep the species alive because it's a very dry planet. But one of the important things he points out is he says that you can't see any country delineations on Mars. So clearly what has happened is that he dis he says this explicitly. He says one uh, race of people on Mars has evolved far enough to dominate and take over and create a single unified government and race on Mars. And it's very clear what he's projecting. He's projecting uh, white male technologists because these people are building canals, which at the time he's writing are one of the most uh, kind of high tech products of modernity. This is the same time that the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal are being built. So that's not even in sci-fi. That's in astronomy. That's an actual argument about uh, what, what he is seeing through his telescopes. But of course, it is a projection of the future because Mars is absolutely this screen onto which the future of the Earth is being considered. And as I say, these same ideas, the kinds of ideas that are nourishing Lowell's thinking, are also nourishing the kind of future war sci-fi that becomes a really strong strand of science fiction writing, particularly in the early 20th century, where writers fantasize about the developments of uh, future wars, which almost always end with global domination by one cohort of people and that cohort of people on the one hand they're always they're always white but those people are always also rational scientists there's a very technocratic strand to this and hg wells was very much um, an advocate of this idea which is that the future of global governance lay in scientific governance that instead of having emotional political governance you should actually leave governance to scientists because they will figure out what's right for everyone by just crunching the numbers. Caroline, are you happy to sort of jump in on this one and sort of pick up and maybe um, you can bring in your sort of, you know, 20th century sort of perspective was, here? Yeah, I, I was thinking about something that perhaps is already obvious, but future projections are always projections that come from the time in which they're made. And they therefore gather up and express the social relations of the time and the differences of the time and the different positions and actually the racialized and the gendered uh, biases that we see there make that incredibly obvious. The question that then arises for me actually is, okay, they express those relations, but somehow the claim that science fiction makes and maybe the claim that literature makes is that somehow it can break out of those horizons. Somehow it doesn't only express, ideas about the future don't only inevitably express the dominant ideas of the time that they're writing from. They manage somehow to think about something else, to see another horizon. And I'm thinking actually here to jump right forward to the 20th century about Ursula Le Guin, 
and the speech she made when they finally gave her a medal for her science fiction writing, you know, very late in her life, despite the fact she was so distinguished, where she thought she talked about the need for other ways of thinking about the future and other kinds of writing. And she talked about science fiction in terms of a greater realism. So she was talking about realism as not accepting what we're given as inevitable, but thinking about a possible future. And all of her writing intervenes in that in different ways, I think. She says, okay, these look like inevitable gender relations. In this world, I am going to disrupt those gender relations and talk about a society which, in which, human, in which the, uh, the inhabitants change gender from month to month. What does that do to this culture? So she's starting from a very different place, actually, and assuming that instead of talking about very new technologies and very old social relations, you start by thinking, what if social relations were different? And then what kind of society would that produce? And that opens up a different future, I think. So the, the question that science fiction, one of the important questions about science fiction for me would be, or a starting place to think about it, would be to say, yes, it's absolutely bound up in and entangled with dominant social forms and with scientific culture at the time, but it's entangled with it in a very specific way and it can do something. And one of the things it can do is kind of peep over a horizon or perhaps pick up those subaltern or less dominant currents of thinking that were always there. You know, so then you could go back to Mary Shelley and say, yes, she was picking up a fear but there was also something interesting about confusing boundaries between artificial bodies and human bodies that did something about what it was to be a woman as well. So I, I think there's a way in which science fiction can deal in utopian thought that produces something new. So there's a lot more to science fiction than aliens. Oh, absolutely. Johnny kicked things off by explaining that science fiction was a way to imagine other types of mind and how sci-fi has always been important to artificial intelligence, or AI. But we also heard that sci-fi has had some oppressive edges. For example, for millennia, different Western cultures have seen men, mainly white men, as the examples of thought without paying much attention to other viewpoints and worldviews. We also talked more about Ada Lovelace, who we met earlier. As well as being the prophet of the computer age, Ada has today become an iconic figure in maths, science, and science fiction. Yay, Ada! Caroline mentioned Ada Lovelace Day, which, if you're interested, is on the second Tuesday of October. That's the 12th of October if you're listening in 2021. And that's the 9th of October if you're listening in 1821. Shout out to the sea theory of time! Caroline also mentioned Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, published in 1818, just before the Victorian era. Quick side note, Mary Shelley also had a bit of a relationship with Ada's dad, good old Lord Byron. Small world, eh? But what's Frankenstein got to do with AI and computers? Well, Johnny told us that Frankenstein, both the story and his monster, um, is seen widely as a classic response to the fear of not knowing where technology might take us. Science is set up to answer the question of, can we do something? For example, can we sew together body parts from dead people and inject new life into it with electricity? Answer, no. Science isn't set up to answer the question of, should we do something? For example, should we sew together body parts from dead people and inject new life into it with electricity? Answer, 
Of course! Why else does anyone go to university? In writing Frankenstein, maybe Shelley was sort of saying, hang on a sec here, we should probably look a little harder at the implications of some of this new technology before barreling ahead with it, wouldn't you say, boys? Josh offered another couple of examples of noteworthy science fiction here. For example, H.G. Wells's Island of Dr. Moreau, published in 1896. Back when a PhD was a surefire route to owning your own island. And given that Moreau is a sort of mad scientist running unethical biological experiments on a remote island, and given that Wells was fond of eugenics, I'm not sure there's much to look up to here. Josh also mentioned H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, published in 1895, which is one of the first examples of the time travel subgenre of science fiction, or, as Wells called them, scientific romances. That's not what my postdoc told me about scientific romances. He told me that when a round bottom flask and a petri dish love one another very much... Okay, stopping you right there, James. You might have heard Josh talking about Eloy and Morlocks. If you were as confused as we were by these terms, we recommend you take a gander at the time machine. There are two types of beings encountered in the book. Hashtag no spoilers. We also heard Josh use a great word here. Fabulation. I swear fabulation was made up by Aqua when writing the lyrics for Barbie Girl. Well, if so, Josh wasn't admitting to it. We asked him later about fabulations, and we think it means imagining something based on the imagining of something else. Easy. Josh also told us that interestingly, when we get to the late 19th century, we start to see more and more stories set in the future. Perhaps it's got something to do with that definition of modernity we heard earlier. I like Johnny's suggestion that we might be able to draw a parallel between the chaos which the Victorians might have felt and the way some of us might feel today in 2021. Yeah, the idea that we keep expecting or hoping for things to change because we're always promised things will get better, but maybe these promises mean we become complacent. Caroline also connected this back to the idea of a utopian future delivered to us by technology, but is this actually very likely? It reminds me of some of what we talked about in series one, where people are expecting a technological or scientific solution to climate change that will solve all of our problems. But what nearly everyone told us last series was that science isn't actually going to solve our problems. Not on its own, anyway. So, wait, let me get this straight. Are you saying that perhaps by valuing science so much, this has somehow led us astray? That's the idea. If by valuing science so highly, we're expecting it to solve all our problems. Oh. Hit me in the science degree, why don't you? We also talked about how values in the past always shape projections about the future. We talk more about this in a future episode. A pretty horrendous example of this was the belief that white Anglo-Saxon races would become dominant controlling forces in global governance. As Josh said, a dominant idea in the 19th and early 20th centuries was, sadly, virulent racism. Ugh. Josh gave the example of white male astronomers using Mars, the planet, not the chocolate bar, as a means to project their own prejudice. For example, Percival Lowell, born 1855 and died 1916, thought that because he could see channels of water on Mars, but couldn't see physical boundaries between different countries, that this might indicate that there was one mega unified race. Just a reminder here, this is not sci-fi we're talking about. Lowell was an astronomer. This is what scientists were actually theorizing about at this time. Well, some of them. Really rubbing salt in the science wound here, Naomi. 
On a lighter note, Caroline told us that sometimes literature can see beyond the dominant values and beliefs of the time. She gave us the example of Ursula Le Guin, an American sci-fi author born 1929 and died 2018, who talked about the need for other ways of thinking about the future. A lot of her writing revolved around the question, what kind of world do we want to live in? Another great author who tackled similar questions and who we didn't get to talk about much in this episode is Octavia Butler. If you want to know more about her, we recommend you check out a recent episode of NPR's Throughline podcast. We'll put the link in the episode description for you. I hope NPR pays us for that shout out. Can I, I would like to ask a quick follow-up or maybe not quick follow-up here, but you, so we started off talking about sort of technology as a savior, particularly in post, the post-war world. And then you were talking about how the development of AI has changed over time. But what about how people thought AI would be like compared to what it's like now? Or what people think the future of AI will be like now? The idea of how AI has changed, um, historians have, uh, I think, more work left to do to, to, tell, to, to properly answer that question. Because... Um, AI practitioners have had quite a large part in writing their own history. And if you were to ask, you know, Steve Jobs to write the history of computing, there are certain parts of the story he would leave out. Uh, and, you know, just the idea that we're talking about AI may not actually be the case. You know, the, back in the day, that term didn't take off straight away. It was it was terms like applied epistemology or non-numerical computing or engineering psychology um, you know, fully automatic programming, things that do not have nearly as much um, uh, kind of sensationalism built into them. Uh, and so the fact that we've used that term AI to kind of look backwards and, and try and find the narrative, I think uh, belies that we don't actually know yet exactly <laughs> that of which we speak. And, and that's what I'm biased towards saying this, because that's what the project I'm on right now with a bunch of other great researchers around the world that we're trying to, to this is the riddle we're trying to solve. But um, I hope that's not too academic of an answer. Caroline, can I just at this point jump over to you here? So uh, we're thinking about this idea of AI. So when did, when and why did AI sort of become, you know, scary or somewhat threatening? You can see a long history of ambivalence about the the idea at the root of AI, which is that intelligence has come into the world to challenge human intelligence or to act like humans or to pass as humans and scare us as such. You know, Metropolis would be one of the films that expressed that. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke's work would gather up that fear of an intelligence that surpasses us. And today as well, you know, there's this endless genre of films which are often oddly retrofuturist at the same time as addressing this idea of intelligences that we don't get, that we can't quite recognize, that are a bit too much like us. So that kind of cultural anxiety around AI is very long-standing and I think it relates to science as science develops or to technology as it develops, but it's slightly separate from that or bigger than that and it's very interesting. And I think it actually um, it comes back in waves so that I, I think Joshua's uh, discussion of progress and, and history at the beginning was very interesting. But I think one of the things that's very noticeable about AI 
and our cultural concerns about it is that it returns as an anxiety in different forms and shapes across different periods. So if you go back to the 60s, when you've got the rise of computers and computers coming into public consciousness, if you like, then you have a kind of series of worries about intelligence. You come back to the 80s and the internet, and there's cyberspace, William Gibson, the idea of networked and network intelligences, another kind of fear. And right now, another wave of concern around uh, the future to come in relation to rising forms of AI. So I, one of the things I'm really interested in is ways in which our futures come back to haunt us in, in cyclical ways. You know, So we're haunted by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein right now. I don't think we cared about her so much in the 90s, but now, because there's new developments in AI, she's back in our heads. And, and I think that's a sort of, uh, because we haven't resolved the big issues about technology and culture or being really basic, being human when machines are getting cleverer. I, I agree completely with Caroline. And I think one way to characterize the legacy that we've inherited is looking at infrastructure and the environment, because there's a really interesting paper written in 1955 by a mathematician named John von Neumann, who kind of laid the blueprint uh, of what a computer was, kind of helped to uh, bring us the digital computer. Um, and he wrote, he's pretty private, but he wrote this uh, article in Fortune magazine called, uh, Can We Survive Technology? And his concern was that we would reach a material limit on the planet Earth where living in abstraction just wouldn't work anymore because we did, we'd lack the resources or politics would become too inflamed and we'd be at each other's throats. And, um, you know, in the, in the late 1950s, you start to see this, this exponential growth. There were, you know, two electronic digital computers in operation in the U.S. in 1950, you know, 5,000 in 1960, 25,000 in 1965, 75,000 in 1970. And, Today, with things like AI and blockchain being talked about, you know, the blockchain is now purported to take as much, take up as much energy as, you know, uh, Argentina, the country of Argentina. And it, it, it's like this, this assumption that we can solve social problems by becoming ever more technological is going to kill us if we keep going down this path. And I think we need to start to find stories that remind us, and Frankenstein I think is one, that you know, we can drink, or that we, we have, that we have to be careful with that, uh, that material limit, I guess, among other things. Just to go back to that question of, can we so survive sort of technologies? Can you sort of tell us a little bit more about, you know, what a sort of current futures of AI might be? One of the, one of the, the ways in which um, digital technologies or AI technologies, to, to let those things fall together for the moment, one of the ways that it has been thought from maybe from the 60s, uh, but certainly through the 80s and 90s, is that uh, computational technologies are light and airy and non-energy absorbing and somehow uh, friendly environmentally and socially. You can see it in cultural effort phenomena, but you can see it around the 80s dreams of virtual space as endlessly extensible somewhere else. You can see it now around the ideas of limitless intelligence or in blockchain technologies. But one of the big visions of the future given by the computational is that it's a kind of technology that's free and limitless. And one of the things that's happening now 
is that we're coming up against the limits of that vision uh, because of our, a better understanding of environmental constraints. And um, one of the things that's doing, I think, is pointing us back towards a way of thinking about technology in relation to the world ending rather than the future arriving. You know, there's a long chain of apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic visions of the future. But I don't think I don't think it's an accident that a lot of science fiction you'll see on the shelves and a lot of academic theorizing is actually around this idea of world ending at the moment. So futures that are closed. This is a question for everyone. Maybe I'll pull Josh in first since it's been a while since we heard from you. But based on your understanding of the past, what do you think the next 100 or so years will bring in the world of technology? Sure. I mean, um, historians are always loathe to, to project into the future, um, in part because by studying the way people have done it in the past, we know what a mug's game it actually is. The story about the immediate future that interests me most based on my own research um, brings us back to one of the great characters and villains of the present age which is Elon Musk because Musk has staked the claim that um, climate change is happening um, that the, the world is going to um, face catastrophe in the near future but it's okay because the solution is that we move to Mars. Now most of our listeners, I hope, will see the idiocy, the, the bald-faced idiocy in the claim that the solution to, to leaving a planet that we've evolved to live on is to go and move to a planet which is extremely inhospitable uh, to any form of life. But what's interesting to me is that, as I see it, e Elon Musk really is the Percival Lowell of today. He's, he's committing exactly the same kinds of sins uh, that Lowell did when Lowell projected life, advanced technological life on Mars back in 1900, because Lowell saw himself on Mars in the future, which is to say a rich industrial capitalist building canals. This is this is the Lowells of the future who are who are securing the future for Mars. In the same way, Musk is not seeing the future of humanity on Mars. He's seeing himself on Mars. I mean, he actually said that going to Mars in the future and living there will be affordable and then said it might cost as little as half a million pounds for a ticket to Mars. So that gives you a sense of the kind of projection of who he actually sees on Mars. It's not the future of humanity. Um, it's it's the future of uh, a very rich elite. So really, all I can say about the future is that uh, we need to look out, watch out for people like Musk, because we have precedent from the past in people like Percival Lowell. We know that these kind of techno triumphalist fantasies are dangerous, and we should watch out for them. And as both of my colleagues on this call have pointed out, these kinds of fantasies can be used as a way of obfuscating dealing with present problems. It's very simple to listen to Musk and think, well, okay, well, actually, we don't need to worry about climate change because the technologists, the people building spaceships have got the future sorted. And I think that's very dangerous. So I've always been interested in how, for example, feminist writers in the 60s and 70s, fictional writers and theorists and activists thought about computational culture, technology, reproduction and biotech. And really what they were saying was, I disagree with the way that society in general is thinking about where 
it should go. I've got another idea. So I'm interested in those alternative futures that endlessly come up in uh, future visions. So there's a sort of recuperative uh, way of approaching these histories. And it means not looking at the Zuckerbergs or the Musks today, but asking about perhaps what Afrofuturists are writing about. Because they're not starting from the centre, they're starting from somewhere else, both as an analytic of what's going on now and because there's a future there that is being laid out. I think it's really important. Okay, I'm going to jump in here. And this is our last, our final question here. So it's not a speed round, but just short answers only, please, if we can get these ones. And Caroline, I'm going to jump straight back to you because you just talked about um, a couple of things that probably lean towards this question. So what do you look forward to when you think about the future? Freedom. I think the future that we're being given at the moment is increasingly based on a kind of behaviourist consent. And I'd like to think about increased agency and increased freedom and how we get it through technology. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's difficult not to sound trite in such a answer. I mean, I my my hope looking for the future, the optimistic view would would be um, uh, a decline in nationalism because we we have had a swing towards nationalism in the last uh 10 years and um i'm hopeful that we will see uh and are already beginning to see uh, a reaction a response against that um but i there's a risk that i will sound a bit like hg wells who was a who was a, a, a an internationalist shall we say um and there were some dubious facets of that but Without wishing to sound dubious, I would love to um, uh, see a more internationalist future than we are currently living in. One thing that gives me optimism about the future is the idea of leadership rather than leaders. I think that a little bit of leadership for many people uh, can have a much greater effect than relying on, you know, especially false idols, <laughs> but even like the expectation of a kind of Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe version of our future where it will be a, a cohort of, you know, 12 people. And I love them. I love Marvel, so I'm not knocking Marvel, but I don't think Iron Man is going to save us in this instance. So, yeah, and I also want to boost what Caroline said about, you know, if look for the leadership that's there, there is not a vacuum of leadership now. It's just, you know, who who do you give your time to? And I think Afrofuturism is a really good example of an area of, you uh, deep thought about how to live in this world today and and how to honor what we've learned about equity and the kind of disingenuousness of past attempts at equity and and trying to move past into a future that we'd be proud to inhabit and, and proud to pass on and maybe the final final thing i'll say i know you guys had to keep it short but i just i want to return to something josh said too about modernity uh being one way to characterize it and it's a very tough thing to characterize as he said uh, but as a moment that we can, or as a, an inflection point where cultures started to uh, recognize that they didn't have to be like past generations. And I think that's a blessing and a curse because being like past generations, as long as we're learning and, and, and not kind of recommitting ourselves to some of their biases, you know, connects us to our history and to our place in this world. And we can understand our place in this world through history already we don't need a future to arrive to start to do that and it might make people feel a little more 
like they live somewhere uh, in time at least um so that's my plug for for studying history thank you josh for for getting us there Yet another conversation drawing to a close, like a pair of binary stars setting over a dusty desert landscape. We heard all about what we thought artificial intelligence, AI, would look like in the past. Yes, Caroline told us that there's a long history of ambivalence towards AI. For example, the 1927 silent film Metropolis. She says there's an endless genre of films with intelligent beings or entities that are a bit too much like us for comfort. Apparently this anxiety is long-standing and reoccurs time and time again. Caroline also told us that some of these stories are retro-futurist, which is a blend of an old-fashioned style with ideas about the future. Steampunk is a great example of a retro-futurist aesthetic and literary style, with writings often set in an alternative version of the Victorian era. Stories often involve imagining current technologies as they would have been imagined by people from that time period. Sounds like a fabulous fabulation to me, but we'd need Josh to double check I got that right. I loved Caroline's line, our futures come back to haunt us. We are haunted by Frankenstein right now with the rise of AI. It's more in our heads and in this conversation than it has been in recent decades. Caroline also highlighted that digital and computational technologies do have an environmental impact. They're often thought of as somehow free and limitless, but we now have a better understanding of the environmental impacts of these technologies. Realizing that there are limits of technology is making us think about the end of the world. And in fact, there's a lot of apocalyptic literature around at the moment. This is probably not a coincidence. Ooh, and this is where we learned that historians hate making predictions. Exactly. We wanted to know what the next 100 years might bring in terms of technology, which is how we learned Josh isn't keen on making predictions. He compared Elon Musk to Percival Lowell, the astronomer we talked about earlier who thought he saw channels of water on Mars. Musk has claimed that climate change is happening and that some sort of catastrophe will follow, but that it's okay because the solution is we'll move to Mars. But as Josh points out, why would we want to move to an inhospitable planet that we didn't evolve to live on? I'm with Josh. It's hard enough living here on Earth. Well, don't worry. Musk doesn't really see everyone moving to Mars, just people who can afford a half million pound price tag. So you'd be stuck here. You're making a lot of assumptions about my net worth, Nick. For all you know, I could be sitting on a cool million, which I'd use to pay for me and Naomi to go to Mars, leaving you here. Well, at least according to Josh, these kinds of techno-triumphalist fantasies are dangerous, as they mean we might avoid dealing with current, pressing problems. Techno-triumphalist sounds like a great name for a band that blends edgy electronic music with folksy German brass band tunes. Hast du diese neue Musik von Techno-Triumphalist gehört? Geil! And one final term came up at the end there, worth highlighting, Afrofuturism. This is a genre of science fiction, art and music which explores the future from an African-American experience. If you're interested in reading some Afrofuturist work, definitely check out Octavia Butler. And another well-known Afrofuturist writer who we didn't get a chance to mention is Samuel R. Delaney. Caroline said that non-dominant visions of the future, such as Afrofuturism, can be really helpful in expanding our understanding of the world and opening up ideas for possible futures that might not have been considered by the people in the mainstream. Just like Techno Triumphalist's latest album. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. 
Stay tuned for our next episode about well-being. Before then, please fill out our survey. You can find the link in the episode description to tell us what you think of the podcast. And make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. A good one, ideally. And as ever, please spread the mind over chatter word by telling... Just tell everyone. A huge thanks once again to our guests... Caroline Bassett, Johnny Penn, and Joshua Knoll, and to our two fantastic behind-the-scenes helpers this series, Annie Thwaite and Charlotte Zemmel. Music was by the extremely talented Carlo Ladd, and artwork by the equally talented Alex Sadler. See you next time. Bye! Bye.